Let us open our precious Bibles to the little book of Habakkuk. One of the minor prophets between Nahum and Zephaniah. We want to see what he said to Judah and see how it can help our souls living in America in the year 2007. You have just had read to you some good passages of Scripture, and there are many to choose from on this subject. But you had read to you Jeremiah 15, 1 through 9, Jeremiah 25, 1 through 14, and 2 Chronicles 36, verses 5 through 21. And I hope in that combination of passages, you saw Jeremiah's words that were read to you first in the way of prophecy fulfilled in the actual events that took place in Judah. The book of Habakkuk, in only three chapters, is a summary of the vast majority of what Isaiah and Jeremiah have to say. Isaiah and Jeremiah were some of those prophets and messengers sent by God to warn Israel, in the case of Isaiah, and Judah, in the case of both of them, that if they did not turn from their idolatry, God was going to judge them and judge them severely. And judge them severely he did. We believe every word of God. And we believe that every word of God is necessary for our spiritual lives, including the words found in the little minor prophet of the Old Testament called Habakkuk. Our goal will be to admire the forest and the trees of this book, but we'll avoid examining the bark on those trees. We want the lessons for the good of our souls rather than speculative thoughts for the entertainment of our minds. Although I hope there will be plenty for you to be satisfied in all parts. We are thankful for verse 6 of the first chapter because it tells us by the Holy Spirit exactly what's under consideration in the book. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. And if we didn't have that one word, you would be at a loss to prove what the book was about. But because we have that one word, we know exactly what it's about. We know that it's what Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets warned about. And it's what the book of Chronicles tells us actually occurred in the land of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and crushed them. I I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They would be an occupying force and come in and overrun and overthrow the nation of Judah, which is the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin left after the division of the nation. The king of Assyria has already taken the other ten tribes captive. Consider a simple chronology with me. We are thankful for Daniel chapter 9 because it gives us a 486 and a half year prophecy up to the death of Jesus Christ who was cut off in the midst of the 70th week. If we believe and understand that Jesus died in 30 A.D. and if we back up 486 and a half years, we are in 456 B.C. In 456 B.C., that timetable began running by the decree of Cyrus, God's servant. Cyrus said, the Lord God of heaven hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. 
And therefore His people that are willing, rise up and leave Babylon and go back and build His house and build His city. That's 456 B.C. Now for 70 years, the Jews had been captive in that city of Babylon. So we back up another 70, we're at 526 B.C. When Nebuchadnezzar took them captive at first. And we know that Habakkuk was written before that took place. It was written in the lives of his hearers. Because he said in verse 5, the Lord said in verse 5 of the first chapter, I will work a work in your days. This is going to happen to you, and it's going to happen in your lifetimes that this judgment would come upon Judah. So we're thankful for some keys about the timing. So sometime around 550, 570 B.C., doesn't matter. The prophet Habakkuk, along with other prophets, came and warned Judah, if you don't repent, you're in trouble. In this book, there's no room for repentance. It's too late. Jeremiah allowed them some opportunity to repent, but here God was going to bring judgment upon them. World history is His story. If you read world history without putting God first and foremost behind the affairs of all nations, you miss history. It's His story of moving the nations, raising up one nation and putting down another for His own praise and glory and for the profit of His people. All nations are measured and all nations are under the government of God for the sake of His people. We live in the greatest nation the world has ever seen for the sake of His people. Because His people came here and this nation was known above all nations on earth as having the highest concentration of the most zealous worshipers of God in the last 500 years. And we're thankful for that. But it was God that chose us for this nation. We weren't smart enough to choose it and He didn't ask us anyway. He put us here. We don't know anything about Habakkuk, except that he wrote this book. We don't know anything about Habakkuk, except God revealed inspired words to him that he wrote down, and we're thankful for it, and that's all that matters. We don't need to know who his parents were, where he was born, or what high school he graduated from. All we need to know is these are inspired words that God gave to a man, Habakkuk. They were put in the inspired scriptures of God and have been used by his people for many years. Many generations. What lessons will we gather from the little book of Habakkuk? Do not be discouraged or moved or shaken by the rich who are basking and prospering around you in sin. It does not matter. God is in His holy temple. Let all the earth, including them, keep silence. And let you keep silent. And do not complain or murmur. Do not worry about those that have no regard for God or the standards of holiness that you have set for yourself or your family, and they seem to be prospering in that rebellion. Do not worry about it. Do not be discouraged because God will judge. Before we get started in the book of Habakkuk, look at Jeremiah 12 so that I can show you these lessons we want to gather. This is not uncommon for God's people to be discouraged that those who do not obey... Succeed. Those who do not live holy lives, 
who do not worship the Lord, as we try to do, seem to prosper in the world. Jeremiah chapter 12. Now, we've already seen Asaph having that problem in Psalm 73. The book of Habakkuk is going to show us this prophet having the problem. I want to show you Jeremiah having the problem. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them. Yea, they have taken root. They grow. Yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. Notice Jeremiah is just like Asaph. Jeremiah is just like Habakkuk. He knows that God is righteous, and because of his knowledge of the righteousness of God, that God judges sin, he's wondering, how can you let these treacherous people live, and not barely live, succeed? They're planted. They take root. They're there for a good while. They bear fruit. But thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them that dwelleth therein? The beasts are consumed and the birds because they said, He shall not see our last end. And if you were to go on and read the rest of the book of Jeremiah, you would find out that God gives Jeremiah an answer, just like he did Habakkuk. He was going to destroy all the wicked. But I want you to notice, and so you need to examine your own hearts, and I need to examine mine, how often are we discouraged by seeing the wicked living in the lap of luxury while they ignore the God of heaven. They'll have their day. And we are in the sanctuary of God to be reminded of that. Let's come back to the book of Habakkuk and think about another lesson we can learn. Do not be dismayed when there are dark clouds of God's providence that comes into your life. That come into your life. They will come. God will bring dark clouds of providence into your life. That means there will be evil circumstances in your life. Because He has lessons to teach us that He cannot teach us by prosperity. So He teaches them to us by adversity. But when adversity comes into your life, God is still in His holy temple. Let all the earth, including you, be silent before Him. Job. Job. Bless bless Job for being such an example to us. When he had everything stripped away from him, he fell down on the ground, he rent his mantle, and he worshipped the Lord. He worshipped. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave. The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all these things, Job did not charge God foolishly. And we never want to charge Him foolishly. And that's part of what it means when it says, let all the earth keep silence before Him. Don't you lift up your mouth and complain against the God of heaven. These men did it and God allowed us to have an inspired record of them doing it because they were all corrected from it. They did not stay like this. And it's by their examples we're comforted that we are not held to a perfect standard, but the Lord does expect us to recover from such foolish thinking. 
Another lesson. You ought to prepare your heart by considering His works of old. We are made better by the simplest Bible stories of what God has done in the past for His people. Amen. Chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk is nothing but a listing in very beautiful language because it is a prayer and it is a song of what God did for Israel when He brought them out of Egypt and through the nations of Canaan. That's all chapter 3 is. From verses 3 through 16, it is a prayer and a song of what God did for that nation already. David taught us that when he was cast down, I will remember thy works of old. I will muse on all the works of thy hands. And that is how he was made better. He meditated on those things, and we want to do that. And it's a lesson we get from the book of Habakkuk. To remember what God has done in the past and to believe and trust that He will do it in the future. Because He will do it in the future. Another lesson. With the right attitude and spirit, which are precious keys, you can face anything in this life and still want to dance. You can face anything and want to dance. And you know where I'm getting that from. It's the last three verses of chapter 3, where it describes total economic failure, and yet Habakkuk says, The Lord is the strength of my life. He is my strength. He is going to give me hind's feet. Those That's a female deer, light of foot, and I am going to dance on my high places. I'm going to be full of joy in the face of total collapse because the Lord is my strength. That's a lesson we want to get. Another lesson. If you think that God's people, that you see them among us and in other places, getting away with sin, they will not get away with sin. God is judge of His people first. Another lesson. We live in a nation that has turned its back on God and sins profanely, promiscuously, passionately, perpetually. We have a wicked nation that we're part of. This nation claims with their mouths to be under God, to trust in God. And yet as a nation, we do not do so. We have a wicked nation. It is filled with blood that God will require of it. The abortion of one and a half million a year for the last 30-some years, is just one of their crimes. The Lord will judge. To tell the God of heaven, your Ten Commandments are not good enough for our public schools. We do not want our children to know your Ten Commandments. We want our children to know about athletes and actors and actresses and the, the religion of Islam and that the gay life is an alternative lifestyle and that we came from monkeys, but we will not have your commandments taught to our children. Oh, there's a God in heaven. God is in His holy temple. Amen. And I'm going to tell you something. There's a prayer in this book we better be praying. In wrath, remember mercy. Yeah, right. Did any of you read those little words? In wrath, remember mercy, because I'll tell you something right now about the God of heaven. His wrath is boiling against this nation. He has given us too much to allow us to get away as a nation with saying such blasphemous things against the God of heaven. 
that those statements that I just gave you are worse than the idolatry of Nebuchadnezzar. And I mentioned this recently. This is just your pastor's perspective on things. At least, at least the Babylonians recognized that they needed some kind of a deity to recognize as being the source of their blessings and successes. Our nation doesn't want to give credit to even an idol. They want to take it all to themselves. That the greatest love of all is loving yourself, and on and on it goes. God's wrath is boiling against this nation, and one of the lessons that we can learn is that God is not going to allow this nation to get away with it, but those who are faithful, He is able to preserve in the midst of a hailstorm of fire and brimstone. Jeremiah. Do you know how big Jerusalem was? Judah was millions of people. When Nebuchadnezzar came and raised that thing, Nebuchadnezzar, the servant of the Most High God, looked up Jeremiah and said, and gave special charge to him to protect him and make sure nothing happened to him. Everyone in Judah that saluted Nebuchadnezzar and submitted themselves to him, God spared them. Did you read there where Zedekiah had been sworn to an oath by Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar made King Zedekiah swear by Zedekiah's God that he would be faithful to Nebuchadnezzar. And if he would have been, he'd have been spared and God would have preserved him. But he wasn't. So Nebuchadnezzar took care of it and the Lord took care of him through Nebuchadnezzar. Brethren, judgment is coming, but God, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. They don't want to keep silence. They're making a bunch of racket and noise today. Oh, they're all in their little religious ceremonies in ballparks all across the country. I believe there's an NBA final today. I believe Major League Baseball is filling up people's activities today. But they don't want to hear about the God of heaven. But let us be faithful. The just shall live by His faith. If we will build our lives upon faith, Let hell come upon this country. God will spare us and keep us. But if we compromise from all that He has shown us and blessed us with, He will throw us in with the rest of them. The book of Habakkuk. The first chapter is 17 verses long and it's divided this way. The first verse introduces the prophecy and tells us the name of the man to whom God gave the vision and the prophecy for us. This prophet complains about the wickedness of Judah that he is able to see so clearly in verses 2 through 4. His complaint is about his own people because he is sickened by the lack of the fear of God in Judah and by their wickedness and idolatry and corruption and oppression and violence. And there are chapters written about this by the prophets of how wicked it was in Judea. The next lesson is from verses 5 through 11, God answers them. Habakkuk is complaining. He's asking in verses 2 through 4, why are the wicked getting away with this? Your law is being trampled upon. The righteous are surrounded by the wicked. They're being abused and oppressed. What are you going to do about it? Verses 5 through 11 is what he's going to do about it. Verses 12 through 17 is Habakkuk's response. Just like Jeremiah that I read to you in the first two verses, just like Asaph, how can you, the God of heaven, that are of purer eyes than to behold evil, approvingly, you can't approve of sin, how can you be using the most wicked nation on earth to punish people that are better than they are? 
That doesn't sound right to me. Lord, explain. Chapter 2 is the answer to that complaint, that question. It was a God-fearing question. He didn't understand. He professes God's holiness. But he says, your holiness is not consistent with you using such a wicked, profane, cruel nation to punish a nation that is better than they are from his vantage point. But remember, to whom much is given, much shall be required. And nothing had been given to Babylon like it had been given to Israel and Judah. And so they suffered for it. Those are the divisions. And I want to tell you a secret. In a prophecy like this, knowing those divisions, knowing those divisions is far more important than knowing the details of the verses. Because the details of the verses are going to be prophetic language just filling out those divisions. If you can know that chapter 1 is this, Habakkuk is sickened by the sins of Judah. God answers him and tells him, I'm going to crush Judah for their sins. And then Habakkuk raises a question, how can you crush them by such a wicked nation as the Babylonians? That's chapter 1. And if you know those divisions and the purpose of the chapter, you have the chapter. Because there's no reason to worry about each phrase in each verse, though we're going to cover the verses. It's you, you want to get a hold of the lesson. What is going on here between Habakkuk and the Lord? And then chapter 2 is God's answer to his question of chapter 1. And then chapter 3 is Habakkuk basking by faith that God is in his holy temple and everything is going to be just fine. Because God has everything under control. He is going to take care of the sins of Judah. And then he is going to take care of the sins of Babylon. And they are going to become a perpetual hissing and desolation while his people will be saved. Chapter 1, verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. The burden is an expression used for prophets, meaning the judgment that is coming upon. But here there's no name. If we go back to Nahum, the book right in front of it, chapter 1, verse 1, it says the burden of Nineveh. Because the book of Nahum is simple enough. It's God's judgment upon the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The empire that came in front of Babylon. The empire that took the ten tribes captive. Their capital city was Nineveh. Jonah went and preached to it. They repented for a while. They went back to their idolatry. God wiped them out. Chapter, The book of Nahum is all about that. And the burden of Nineveh means God's judgment that's coming on Nineveh. Here, there's no name. If you look at all the other occurrences of the burden of the Lord, it will usually name the burden of Babylon, the burden of Nineveh, the burden of Israel, the bur- other burdens. But here it's not named because there's two burdens. It's the burden of Judah and the burden of Babylon. There's judgment coming on both. We come to verse 2. And verses 2 through 4 are the prophet asking God how long he is going to put up with the wickedness of Judah. And you know, when we read verses like this, this is a holy man. And this holy man cannot put up with the compromise and the carnality and sin of Judah. God's ministers should all be like this. Grieving over sin among the people of God. Do not think... Because God has not judged you yet, though you are living a carnal, self-centered, worldly life, that you will get away with it. Because there is an answer from the Lord, and it starts in verse 5. 
He will do a marvelous wonder and He will crush you. He will not allow you to get away with sin. But let's go to verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4, and read Habakkuk's complaint. O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Habakkuk here is complaining, Lord, look what's going on in Judah. It's public. I can see it everywhere. And you have shown me additional things that I can't see with mine eye because you've given me a vision into the very heart of the nation. Look at what's going on here. Your law is slacked. No one's holding fast to your law anymore. The decisions made in court. The judges rule by their own thinking. The kings selfishly pursue their own means. The priests, they prophesy and they labor for hire and for profit. All these things are said in chapter after chapter of the prophets. Here you just get three verses. Lord, look at the violence. The few righteous that are left are surrounded and circled by the wicked. There's oppression everywhere I turn. Lord, why are you showing me all this but not doing anything about it? Why don't you hear my cry unto thee? Why do you just let it go on? Oh, the Lord will not let it go on forever. But I want to tell you why it appears that He lets it go on sometimes. It's because He is long-suffering. And you better thank the God of heaven He is long-suffering. And I better thank the God of heaven He is long-suffering. But there are times when the state of wickedness of a nation like Judah gets so bad that you want the judgment of God to come upon it. To punish the evildoers. And so these three verses are describing that. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry? Habakkuk had been crying and praying to God. Do you see the wickedness? What are you going to do about it? He had been complaining about the violence that he saw in the land of Judah. And no one was saving the oppressed. There was a violent perverting of justice in this province. And nothing was being done yet. But do we believe that there will be something done when we see the violent oppressing of the poor in a province? Ecclesiastes 5.8 tells us indeed there is one higher than they and he will judge. In verse 3, Habakkuk admits that the Lord had shown him a measure of the iniquity by inspiration. You've shown me how bad things are. Judgment doth never... And cause me... Verse 3, and cause me to behold grievance. Spoiling. Taking advantage of people and plundering them from their assets. And violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. There's fighting and debating and wars going on among the people of God. Therefore, the law is slacked. Judgment doth never go forth. They never make a right decision anymore. Do you ever feel, listen, when you read these verses, does it sound like reading a newspaper today? In a nation that calls itself Christian and once appeared Christian? Read the newspaper and you think this sounds just like America. The law doth never go forth. Judgment never goes forth. The law is slack. They don't even want the law in the schools. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. 
There's more of them, and they surround the righteous and overwhelm them. Therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. The decisions that are being made are terrible decisions. And so, the prayer of Habakkuk. Lord, do you see this? Why are you showing it to me? I've prayed about it. Why don't you save these oppressed people? The ones that are the victims of these wicked men. So we come to the second section of chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For, lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this, his power, unto his God. And so we have the Lord's words about the Babylonian Empire. These verses 5 through 11 are simple enough. We want the lesson. I mean, we can, we can spend time on every phrase there if you wish, but we want the lesson. The Lord says, Habakkuk, I've waited as long as I'm going to wait. I'm going to bring judgment upon Judah for all the things that you've been seeing. You know that I'm a righteous God, and here's what I'm going to do. I have raised up the Chaldean Empire. History is his story. The Babylon, the Chaldeans were nothing. They were nothing. Babylon is in Iraq. There is nothing in Iraq today, and there wasn't anything in Iraq before Nebuchadnezzar. The Tower of Babel had been there a long time before, but Babylon was not a world force at all. God made them a world force. Look what it says in verse 6, Lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. He raises up nations and He puts down nations. And we have been a blessed nation. But there is no reason to think that God cannot raise up another nation that can easily march through the breadth of this nation and judge this nation for its wickedness. And so we must remember the lessons. There are key verses in this this book. The key verses are 2-4, but the just shall live by his faith. The key verses are 2-20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The key verses are the last three verses of chapter 3. That no matter what happens, the Lord is our strength and our joy, and we are going to dance on our high places. Do you know what the, the captive Jews that feared the Lord and their lives were spared and they got to go to Babylon did? Do you know what the Lord told them when they got there? Plant vineyards! You know what that's for, don't you? Now, there wasn't a Welch's factory in Babylon. Do you know what a vineyard's for? And he said, give your sons and daughters in marriage. 
Enjoy the place. I've preserved you. I just had to kill a lot of wicked Jews. And I have to let my land lie desolate for 70 years to keep a long Sabbath day of 70 years duration. That's what he told him. It's found in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Pray for the peace of Babylon. Because in her peace, you'll have peace and enjoy yourselves. You know what? He's able to do that in the midst of Babylon. If, our, if we keep our trust in Him. Verses 5 through 11 are the description of the greatest, most glorious empire to that time in the world and that the world has seen. One nation that could dominate other nations so easily. As the book is going to tell us, for Nebuchadnezzar to take out other nations, it was like men go fishing. Sometimes they just pick on one fish and so they throw out a hook. It's called an angle in the book of Habakkuk. Sometimes he wasn't content with just one nation. He was going to take a whole bunch at one time. And so he would drop down his net or his drag and he would take them all at once. God gave him all that strength and military success and glory and wealth. They captured the wealth of the nations. He raged wherever he wished. No one could stay. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And that's what he's describing in verses 5 through 11. Behold ye among the heathen. Let all nations of the earth see what I am going to do to my own people. And regard it and wonder marvelously. And you Jews that are among the heathen, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you, even though I tell you. They thought that God did not see They thought that because they had the temple of the Lord, they could not be taken. Do you remember Jeremiah 7 from a couple of weeks ago where I showed you the lying words that they trusted in? The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. Describing the buildings of the temple. You know, Solomon's magnificent temple. They had that beautiful temple with the daily sacrifices and the beauty of it, and they knew that it was the Lord's temple. So they believed to themselves... Our nation is invulnerable to foreign attack because the Lord's going to defend it. And He says, I'm going to do a wonder and it's going to be marvelous. I am going to leave this nation a desolation and a hissing and a reproach for 70 years. I will level this place, including my house. And though I tell you about it, you won't believe it until you see it. Verse 5. He describes the Chaldeans in verse 6, that bitter and hasty nation, meaning they were cruel and very speedy in their conquests. They'll march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. You know, a man takes comfort in his house and his property. Ask Brother Red how much he wants to be back in his house. Men take comfort in their houses. They love their houses. It's their personal place. It's their little kingdom. It's their place of refuge and quiet and peace. And all the houses of the Jews would be occupied by a foreign army that would take them and rifle them. They would have no regard for all the labor that had been spent in erecting that house and beautifying the grounds. The Babylonians would destroy it and take whatever there was of value and haul it back to Babylon. Verse 6. Verse 7, they are terrible and dreadful. And we could spend a lot of time, we could quote historical documents, we could go to Jeremiah and Isaiah, which are better historical documents, 
and describe the fierceness of the Babylonian cavalry and all that they did to their enemies. But if you remembered carefully from the reading of Scripture this morning, how much pity would Nebuchadnezzar and his troops have on young men and women? None. There was no such thing known as pity. Please, think with me for a moment. The Babylonians did not know such a thing as pity. If Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, got an idea, like, I think I'll build me a golden image, and I'll have my band play, and all my counselors, sheriffs, governors, and rulers throughout my empire, if they don't bow down and worship my image, what would he do to them? Burn them to death. Now, what do you think? If that's the way that man treated his own people, how do you think he treated his enemies? They are terrible and dreadful. You know, you may ask me, what should I get from that verse? When God brings judgment upon His people, if they are wicked, He will bring terrible and dreadful judgment upon them. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. The way they make decisions and the choices they make are subject to no law on earth. It proceeds from themselves. They make whatever decision they want to. He is an absolute despot. He does not regard the opinions of anyone. We have a thing in our present history of the world called the Geneva Convention, which tells armies how they're supposed to conduct themselves on the battlefield lest it get too terrible and dreadful. Trust me. Trust the Word of God is what I really mean. Trust the Word of God. Nebuchadnezzar did not care about any Geneva Convention or a military code of ethics. He killed and ravished any nation that he chose in any way that he chose. He told his counselors once that he'd had a dream. My counselors, these were the men that were around him every day. My counselors, if you cannot tell me my dream and the interpretation of it, I will chop you in pieces and I will turn your house into a dunghill. That's how he thought. His judgment proceeded of themselves. They didn't have regard for anyone. Verse 8, their military means were incredibly efficient and blessed and intimidating. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. If you can imagine in your minds a cavalry of Babylonian soldiers racing across the level plain to take out another village, another town of the Jews. If you ever read about the eagle, you know the eagles usually when you see them are either sitting on a branch or they are floating in the wind currents without even moving a wing. But when they see something down below, and they do have decent eyes, at a quarter mile in height they can see a field mouse in a field. They will fold those wings in and they will exceed a 100 miles an hour in their dive. So we have the Lord by His prophet comparing these horsemen racing across the plain to take out the next village without regard for anyone as an eagle that hasteth to eat. Verse 8. So we come to 9. They shall all, they shall come all for violence. How many of them do you think came Because they had to. How many of them do you think came and they had pity in their hearts? 
It says they shall come all for violence. They don't like being away from home, and they don't like these little upstart people called the Jews, whom their king had made their king swear by their God that they would not rebel. And so when they did rebel, they came all for violence. There was no pity. There was no quarter given. It didn't matter which battalion or division of that army you ran into. It was terrible and dreadful. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind. They shall devour and eat up everything like the east wind that comes out of Iraq does to Israel even to this day. That east wind that comes out of the sandy deserts of that country that the Bible talks about in other places, it would, as it devours the vegetation, so they would come in the same way and devour everything. And they shall gather the captivity as the sand. How many captives would they take? Like the sand which is by the seashore, it would be innumerable. They would take so many captives. They would gather them like the sand. There'd be so many captives. And you know, they took many of the Jews captive and they took captives of other nations back to Babylon. And even though 45,000 left Babylon with Ezra and Nehemiah to go build the city of Jerusalem and the temple, there were still many Jews that were left there. There was a large population of Jews there because Peter went and was at their church in 1 Peter chapter 5. Thy elect sister in Babylon greeteth thee because there was a church there. There were many Jews there. They, they gathered up the captives. Verse 10, they shall scoff at the kings. Jehoiachin? Jehoiakim? Zedekiah? Those kings didn't phase them. And the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold. No matter what. This is the word of the Lord to Judah. No matter what kind of defenses you make, no matter what fortifications you put in place, they're going to deride them. They'll be a joke. They're coming so fast and they're blessed because I'm blessing them. If you, I, think that we can get away with sin because we have our house in order, we have our lives in order as we measure order, and if we think that will preserve us from God's judgment, you are mistaken. When God sends His judgment, it will be like these Babylonians and nothing will stop them. They're going to laugh at every stronghold. For they shall heap dust and take it. What does that mean? What were some of the defensive measures made in cities in this day? They would dig trenches or they would build high city walls. What does it mean to heap dust? The Babylonians would arrive and build ramparts up to that wall and go right over the top of it. No problem. Nothing was going to stop them, and they did it. They took Mount Zion and the city that was on the top of that mountain, surrounded by walls on a mountaintop. You would think Jerusalem should have been pretty hard to take. Babylon took it with no problem at all, because God was with them. And so we have verses 5-10 through describing what God is going to raise up, and raise up He did, an enemy to punish the people of God who thought that they could sin with impunity, because they knew that they were God's chosen people, and they knew they had the temple of the Lord, so they did not fear Him. They drew nigh to Him with their mouth, but their heart was far from Him, and He judged them terribly. And this is the answer to Habakkuk's prayer in verses 2-4. through What are you going to do about this wickedness? Verse 11, Then shall his mind change. Nebuchadnezzar was a servant of the Lord when he began. He made Zedekiah swear by his God. Zedekiah's God. 
don't you rebel against me. If you won't rebel, and you've promised you're not going to rebel now, I'll be merciful. You rebel, I'll destroy this city. Don't you hear your own prophet? Your own prophet, Jeremiah, is telling you that I am his servant. And every nation that would submit to Nebuchadnezzar would be spared. But if you don't submit to me, I'll destroy you or any other nation. But then his mind changed. And he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. With basking and flushed, with all the success of his military conquests, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's successors passed over and thought it was their gods that had given them all the success. And that was offensive in the nostrils of God. And in this answer, that's all we're told. Now, please appreciate verse 11. If you were Habakkuk and you, and you told the Lord, look at all the sins in Judah, and then the Lord responded to you by telling you, look what's coming, verses 5 through 10, there's no comfort in 5 through 10 at all. But there is a little bit of comfort in verse 11. I consider the way he's thinking about how I'm using him to be wrong. And that's all we need to hear. If the Lord of heaven thinks it's wrong, he is going to rectify the situation. Nebuchadnezzar offended. The watchers in heaven, who are the angels, came down and said, Lord, we need to cut this man down to size. Are you familiar with Daniel chapter 4? It was by decree of the watchers. The decree of the watchers said, Nebuchadnezzar needs to be cut down. And Nebuchadnezzar was cut down. He walked through his palace even after Daniel's warning and said, Look at the palace of my kingdom that I have built for the majesty and the glory of my kingdom. And then he heard a voice, O king, today thou shalt be driven from men and spend seven years out with the beasts. And he was. He offended. Belshazzar. Did Belshazzar offend? Belshazzar got a thousand of his lords together in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. A thousand of his lords, and he called for the vessels from the house of God in Jerusalem to be brought out, filled with wine, and they praised the gods of the Babylonians. Until that hand came out and wrote on the wall that they were in deep trouble. That's chapter 2 of the book of Habakkuk. They offended. They offended because they passed over. They went across the line that God had given to them. I will allow you to be my scourge among these nations if you will be humble about it and not think that your gods have done it. And they passed over in their mind and took all the glory to themselves. And so Habakkuk gets a hint that God's going to take care of Babylon. But then Habakkuk speaks in verse 12. And he answers what the Lord had just told. In verses 12 through 17 is Habakkuk's response and his complaint about using such a wicked nation to punish the people of God. Art thou not from everlasting? O Lord my God, mine Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, Thou hast ordained them for judgment. And O mighty God, Thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest Thou upon them that deal treacherously, 
and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he, and makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag. Because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Two things we want to gather from Habakkuk's response. First of all, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? Lord, you have given me an answer. I was worried about the sinners in Judah, and you have given me an answer. You are raising up a nation that is going to punish them severely. You are the God from everlasting. There is no changing in you. I thought that maybe you were not going to avenge yourselves of wicked men, but you most definitely are. I see that now. O Lord my God, mine Holy One, art Thou not from everlasting? Thou art the eternal Holy God. His standards do not change. He will judge. We shall not die. He knows from the 11th verse that there is going to be held out, and He knows from God's mercy that the people of God will not be utterly exterminated. They would be severely judged, but there would be a remnant preserved of the nation. We shall not die. We will not be exterminated, is what the intent is of those words. Because he understands this is just chastening out of affection for his nation. O Lord, Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, Thou hast established them for correction. He sees the chastening of the Lord. Habakkuk responded the way we should respond. When God tells us, or convicts us, or He actually drops the hammer on our lives, we should remind Him and we should worship Him like Job did. Thou art from everlasting. Thou art holy. Thou art mighty. And you have a right to chasten and judge your people. And you have a right to chasten and judge me. That's the way Habakkuk responded. That's the way we should respond. This is the lesson that we should gather from this. Let us humble ourselves and be silent from complaining or barking against the chastening of God. Habakkuk worships him for his holiness and for his might in being able to raise up the Chaldeans the way that he did. And he knew that it was for the profitable end of chastening the nation of Judah. Then his complaint. In verse 13 he says, Lord, Lord, explain to me, help me understand how you that are of two, your eyes are too pure. To behold iniquity approvingly. Let me clarify. When you read the Bible, there's a sense to be put on words. When it says, Thou art of pure eyes, then to behold iniquity. To behold evil. It doesn't mean that God doesn't see evil, even though that's what the words say. It's elliptically to be understood, Thou art of pure eyes, then to behold evil approvingly. Because, let me tell you something, Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. The the eyes of the Lord do behold the evil, but they do not behold the evil and approve the evil that the eyes behold. God does not approve evil when He sees it. So that's to be understood. Habakkuk meant it that way, and that's how we understand it when we read it. Lord, You are too pure to behold evil approvingly. 
you are too righteous to look on iniquity approvingly. Wherefore are you looking and watching and actually blessing these Babylonians and Chaldeans to come and thrash your people and to destroy them and to ravage the women and to tear down the temple and to destroy your city? How can you hold your tongue when the wicked, meaning the Babylonians, devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? How can you do that? How can you allow these Chaldeans to come in here who have never worshipped you in any way, not even with their lips, and come in here and destroy your people to whom you gave your law, they have your temple, they have your prophets, and there are righteous among them. To the man more righteous than he. How can you allow this to happen? And how can you allow this king to have such despotic, absolute power and military power to make men like fishes of the sea as the creeping things in the sea that have no ruler over them. The fish of the sea have no ruler. They never band together into an efficient army of self-defense. They never make fortifications. They're just swimming to and fro without a leader in the sea. And you've turned men into nothing more than fish. A fisherman just goes out, casts in his net, pulls them up, slices them open, and eats them. Nebuchadnezzar's treating men and nations like that. How are you allowing that? How does that fit with your character? Verse 15, they take up all of them with the angle. They use hooks. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. You have given Babylon so much authority and power, and you've taken away the power of the nations, and you've taken away the power of Judah, that you've just reduced men to be like fish. He just catches as many as he wants. He has no conscience about it. Just takes them up one at a time. Takes them up a whole net full at a time. It doesn't matter. Lord, what's going on here? Therefore they sacrifice unto their net, verse 16, and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat, and they have plenteous of meat. Look what they're doing, Lord. Because you're giving them so much success, they are praising their gods. They didn't actually burn incense to their nets. They burnt incense to their gods that blessed their nets. They sacrificed to gods that blessed their millet in the nets are not real nets. Because there's not real fish here. This is prophetic language. This is military means of wiping out nations without any difficulty. And so they're worshiping their gods like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar did as the Bible records for us. And so Habakkuk is asking, Lord, how can you allow this to happen? Because you're blessing them so much, they're lifting up more praise to their gods because it appears that their gods are greater than the God of Israel. And Judah. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? If you don't stop them, if you don't stop them, they're going to empty their net of the nations they've taken so far and go right back to catch the next batch of fish. They're going to take out the rest of the nations. They'll dominate the whole world. Their wickedness, their profanity, their cruelty, their terribleness, their treachery will swallow up the whole world If you don't stop this, how's this going on? How can you 
that are of pure eyes than to behold evil allow this to happen. And that is where we end for this assembly. But hear me. How can he allow that to happen? These are his people. How can he turn his people into fish? Where someone as wicked as the Babylonians could come in and devour them. Because of sin, brethren. Because of sin. Because he truly loves us. You say, that's a real chastening. Let that be a lesson to all of you fathers. When you want to compromise your chastening, when you want to be balanced, when you want to be modest with your children, just remember you're not being a father like God. When it comes time for a chastening, the Lord unloads. And the Lord unloaded on these people. Now, He does not unload in this magnitude often. But He does unload. And the terribleness of the Chaldeans and what appears to almost be a contradiction of the nature of God is because He hates sin so much. And He hates sin in your life as much as He hates it in the life of Zedekiah. How many warnings do we have to guard ourselves against sin? Did we have a lesson on Wednesday evening from 1 Peter chapter 2 that told us to lay aside all malice and all guile and all evil speakings and all envies? Were we told that? Were we told to desire the sincere milk of the Word? Were we told that true believers count the Lord Jesus Christ precious? Were we told to fight a war against the lusts of our flesh and to consider ourselves strangers and pilgrims in the earth? If you show affection for this world and do not keep yourself a stranger and a pilgrim here, the judgment's going to come upon you as it did upon them. Did He tell us to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake? Did He tell us to obey even froward masters on the job? Yes, He did. All those things were in 1 Peter 2. Those are the commandments to us. And if you go against them, you are running into the God of history that raised up the Chaldeans to lay flat the nation of Israel and the Jews and level even His holy city and His holy temple. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Let us not complain when His judgment and chastening comes. Let us not lift up our lofty voices and haughty sounds of thinking that we can live any way we want while we are here. We are strangers and pilgrims, and He has given us His laws to guide our lives. Habakkuk chapter 1. May the Lord bless it to our understanding and the conviction of our hearts that sin will be punished. And even though the judgment will make it look like God is favoring the wicked over the righteous, He will not let that bother Him. He will judge the wicked, even though they're His people.